Thank you. Is this on? Can you hear me? Yeah, great. Thank you. I'm going to start in prayer, if that's okay. Father, thank you that you have brought us here today and you are already speaking to us. You are already revealing your love to us. The way that people were just pouring that out in prayer, just spontaneously, Father, just stirred in us that depth of feeling for your love for us. And I pray now that you would give me the words to convey the message that you have for us, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would know you better and follow you more more closely as a result. Amen. That was great, wasn't it? God's already speaking to us. So, I want you to listen to this first bit. It's really important. If you meet a chinchilla from Chile and cut off its beard willy-nilly with a small razor blade, you can say that you've made a Chilean chinchilla's chinchilli. (laughs) Apparently, this is my husband Paul's favourite limerick. I don't know how many limericks you have to know in order to have a favourite limerick, but he says he knows more than that. And we were at an animal sanctuary over the Easter holidays, and we were looking at some chinchillas, and he came out with this poem. And the children found it hilarious and were reciting it. And I realised a couple of days later that I still knew it. It was in my head. I still knew this limerick, and I thought, good, I can use that. That's good. (laughs) There is poetry in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. But there's poetry in the book of Psalms, which is what we're going to be looking at. There's also poetry in the books of Job, Song of Songs, Proverbs, Lamentations, and also dotted around in the other books. And you can tell which bits are poetry because they look different on the page. They've got smaller sentences. They look like poetry rather than just the prose where it's a continuous stream. So why? Why is there poetry in the Bible? It's quite an abnormal and artificial way of writing. It has to be thought about and prepared beforehand. It's not just like telling a story and talking how you normally talk. So why bother? Why did the Bible writers bother including poetry in the Bible? Well, there are a few reasons. Firstly, poetry gets deeper into our minds. It speaks to us in a different way. Like that limerick just stuck in my head after Paul said it once, and I was like, if you meet a chinchilla and chili, just going around my head. Um, It gets deeper into our minds. How many of us remember the owl and the pussycat or something else that we learnt at school that was drummed into us? Um, Because it just speaks into our minds and it just gets into our memory. And it also gets deeper into our hearts and our emotions. Think maybe about Shakespeare's sonnets. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. I don't know any more than that. That's as far as I go. That's all I remember. But it speaks to our emotions a lot more than if Shakespeare had said, hey, babe, you look well fit today. (laughs) It gets 
us, doesn't it? It gets us deep in our emotions. And limericks as well, they're funny, so they, they tickle us, they tickle our hearts, and um, they get into our hearts and emotions. And I think poetry touches God's heart as well. We're made in God's image, and so that's why it's in the Bible. It touches our hearts, it touches God's hearts, and poems set to music as well, songs, they can touch our emotions, can't they? But it also affects our actions too, poetry. Um, I don't know if you like my clip art there. Uh, Paul was like, you're using emojis? That's like bringing back clip art from the 90s. But we've got our brains, our hearts, and our actions. Uh, and they use this quite well on CBeebies. <laughs> if you've got children, you'll know this. Um, for example, there's a program called I Can Cook. And they use songs, Katie singing her insanely happy songs um, about now we've cooked, let's wash up, in the hope that this will teach the little ones how we do things. It teaches them the things to do. And it also affects actions in other ways, like um, if you have like a football chant, why do the fans sing? Why do they chant at football matches? Well, because it's fun and it's a bit like worship in a way, worshipping their team. But also, in the hope that it will affect the player's ability to play. It riles them up and it's like, come on, score a goal. The chants and the songs will affect their actions. So that's why there's poetry in the Bible. And also because it helps us use our imagination. Some people are really visual and they like to use their um, imagination to kind of picture things and, and get things into their, into their minds. And with songs, like in corporate worship, it brings order. If we were all singing different things earlier when we were worshipping, um, it may not have sounded quite as good as when we're all singing poetry to music. We're all singing the same song. It brings order. And there's also some special things about Hebrew poetry. The poetry in the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And... One of the amazing things about Hebrew poetry is that the emphasis is on the content and the meaning in Hebrew poetry and not on the sound. Like with English poetry and that limerick, it's all about the rhythm and the rhyme. But with Hebrew poetry, it isn't. English poetry would be lost in translation if we translated it word for word into different languages. But Hebrew poetry can be translated without losing its essence and what makes it a poem because it's about repetition of phrases and the content rather than the rhythm or the rhyme. It's almost like someone designed <laughs> that the, po the poetry in the Bible would be written in Hebrew and be able to be translated. Of course, God did. It's quite genius, really. And the book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible it's the Old Testament book most quoted in the New Testament. There's 150 psalms, and it was written over a period of nearly a 1,000 years. There were lots of different writers of these poems, these psalms, and it was put together on purpose, designed as a book for the scriptures. Some of the poems were set to music, a bit like the Israelites' hymn book, but not the book as a whole. It wasn't just, this is just a hymn book. Some of them were used as hymns, but some of them were poems to be used corporately 
and some of them were just individual poems and that you can see from the language they say I this and I that rather than we and the book has been put together on purpose designed to teach us to pray and to look forward to the Messiah as it was then when it was written it covers the whole range of human emotions and it covers all the biblical themes, the whole history of Israel, right from creation up until when they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. There are different types of psalms in the book of Psalms. There's poems of praise and there's poems of lament. Those are the two main categories where people are praising God and then where people are, it's almost like shouting at God in anger, why have you let this happen? And so some of them really show the true emotion of the poet. And it's like it gives us permission to pray to God in that way and to really be honest in prayer. So let's get into Psalm 34. This is the one we're going to look at today. So I'm just going to read it to you. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. So on first reading, we see that this is a psalm by David. And it's a psalm of praise. He's praising God. We see in the first verse, it says, I will extol the Lord at all times, which is like passionate praise. And praise psalms draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell what God's done and thank God for it. This psalm is also what's called an acrostic. 
So there's about seven psalms that are acrostics in the book of Psalms. And it's a poem where each verse or line belongs with the, um, starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the most famous one is Psalm 119, the really, really long one. That's an acrostic. Um, and <laughs> acrostics help with memorization. And so that gives us a clue that David was teaching somebody something with this psalm, and he wanted them to remember it. There's also a little clue what this psalm's about. Right at the beginning, there's like a little introduction, a little introductory note, which says of David, so David wrote it, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Okay, so what's that about? So that's a little clue as to the psalm, and it gives us the context of when David wrote it. So actually, this is quite rare in the book of Psalms, but with this one, we can look back to the book of 1 Samuel, which is the story of where David was and what was happening at the time he wrote this psalm, so that we can get some more clues as to what it's about. So keep Psalm 34 open in your Bibles, but I'm just going to read, um, I think it'll come up as well, I'm just going to read 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 to 22, verse 2, to give us some context. So David is being pursued by Saul, who wants to kill him. Always good. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. So the king in this bit is called Ashish, but that's the same as Abimelech. It's like his actual name and his kind of title, but they're the same person. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Ashish said to his servants, look at the man, he is insane, why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So that gives us a clue. He's in a cave. He's hiding. So he's got Saul trying to kill him on the one hand. He went to a Philistine king, Ashish, and now he's trying to kill him as well. And so he's run away and he's in a cave. And these men who are desperate have come to him. So these are the people that David was teaching. These men who are at an absolute low like he was, they're so desperate that they've come to hide with him in a cave and to ask him to be their leader. And it's easy to miss this. It's easy to miss that the intended audience for this psalm are people in desperate need. There's this desperation, and they're hiding in a cave. Because of the joy and the triumph of the psalm, God, you know, I will extol the Lord, his praise will always be on my lips. You just think, oh, he's in a happy place. <laughs> But actually, if you're feeling desperate and low, this psalm is for you, <laughs> because it says in verse 2, um, 
let the afflicted hear. And in verse 6, it says this poor man. In verse 18, it says um, he's talking to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. That's who this psalm is for. It's not just a song when I'm in my happy place. It's for the people who are desperate. He's telling them that God rescued him in order to raise their faith and to teach them to praise God, how to praise God even in the dark times, even when they're hiding in a cave from people who want to kill them. And he's teaching them how to have a right relationship with God. We can see that there's actually a main theme in this psalm. And because of the way that Hebrew poetry is about structure and repetition, we can see that the, the main theme is actually highlighted right in the middle of the poem. There's 22 verses, and so in the middle, that's around about verse 11. And verse 11 says, come, my children, listen to me. Teaching the children. Didn't Miles say something about that earlier? <laughs> come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So this is our main theme of this psalm. It's about the fear of the Lord and the repetition of Hebrew poetry. You know, it's, it's mentioned in verse 7, verse 9, then verse 11. So this is like a really important theme. It's the main theme of this poem. So what is the fear of the Lord? That's what we want to look at today. We want to really get into this psalm. And I expect most people here have heard the verse in Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a film I really like, which I'm ashamed to admit it, but <laughs> called um, Evan Almighty. And I love, there's a bit where Evan's driving in the car and Morgan Freeman, who plays God, obviously, um, appears behind him and Evan goes, ah! And Morgan Freeman says, uh, the beginning of wisdom, my friend. That bit always makes me laugh. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what the fear of the Lord means is it's being concerned primarily with what God thinks and not what men think. Be worried about what God thinks of you and, you know, not about what men are doing, what people are doing. Matthew 10 verse 28 explains it like this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. It's talking about God. He has the power to do that. He's not going to because he loves us. But the world is not the ultimate threat. The world's threats are temporary. Saul chasing David, wanting to kill him. King of Gath of Asheath, or whatever it was. <laughs> he, you know, his threats are temporary. David had learned through his trials that actually he should be more concerned with what God thinks of him. And David used his own devices to get out of um, being killed by these men. He, um, he gathered weapons, which he hadn't done before. You might want to read in, in Samuel. He um, got a sword, which he hadn't done before. Even when he went out to face the giant Goliath, he'd gone with his little slingshot and said, Saul, I don't need your armor. But now he's like lost the plot. He's lost his way with God. He's gone looking for weapons. He's feigned madness to get out of... Um, where the Philistine king wanted to kill him so that he could run away. And now we, he comes to a place where he realizes those threats are not the ultimate threat. They're only temporary. 
Actually, he needs to be more concerned with what God thinks of him and trust God to get him out of these situations and not just go his own way. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul puts it like this. Um, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Fearing God's good because it saves us from getting into sin. And a theologian called William Eisenhower said, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love of the Lord is its completion. You know, there's a risk here that we might get all uh, fire and brimstone and try and like fear you into believing in Jesus. That's, that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying there's a balance here to be struck. God is all powerful and he loves you. And like Shola said, you know, the love of God is a game changer. But let's put him in his right place. It's about a proper reverence and respect for God, but also trusting him and experiencing his goodness. The best, oh, sorry. The best illustration I've ever heard of the fear of the Lord and what that means, you've probably all heard it already, but it's from um, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, where um, someone said, Mr. Beaver says, um, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good. He's the king. Aslan, like C.S. Lewis was a theologian, And it's about Jesus. Aslan is supposed to be a representation of Jesus. And he's the king, but of course he isn't safe. Who wants a safe king who doesn't have any power? Nobody wants a safe king. We want to feel safe in his hands because he loves us. So the psalm is about the fear of the Lord. And what else does it say about the fear of the Lord? Well, in verse 5, it says... Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. So a right fear of the Lord and a right relationship with the Lord leads to no shame but radiance. Shame is the negative feeling we get that's caused by our guilt or humiliation. It's different from guilt because even when people are forgiven of their sin, they can still feel shame. But the Bible tells us, tells us that Jesus takes away both our guilt and our shame so that we don't have to feel that shame of sin. So in a way, this is prophetic. So he's saying that Jesus is going to take away our shame. Their faces will never be covered with shame. But it also has a double meaning. Yes, God removes the shame of our sin. But also, those who turn to him will not be humiliated because he will answer them. Those who look to him will never be covered with shame. And it's not only the absence of shame, but also will be radiant. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3 verse 18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed. We reflect the Lord's glory when we turn to him. And that's why we are radiant. The next thing it says about a right fear of the Lord 
is that we'll be delivered from our troubles. Verses 6, verse 7, 17, and 19 all say about the Lord will deliver him from his troubles. There's loads of stories in the Bible about people being delivered from their troubles by God. In Acts, there's Peter being released from prison where the chains just fell off in Acts 12. In Acts 16, Paul and Cyrus were released from prison when there was an earthquake and the doors just flew open. In Exodus 14, we have Moses. God parted the Red Sea and Moses led the people away from Egypt. There's loads of stories. But maybe it doesn't always happen immediately. David is still in a cave hiding from people who are trying to kill him. And yet he's still teaching the other guys this poem about how God will deliver you from your troubles. And that's also because David knows that ultimately God is going to deliver us from our troubles in eternal life through Jesus. There will be an ultimate deliverance. He also says that a right fear of the Lord, a right relationship with God, will lead to us lacking nothing. Verses 9 and 10. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And again, we read in the Bible that God feeds his people with manna from heaven in the desert. Moses got water from the rocks when they were thirsty. Jesus fed 5,000 men with a few fish and a few loaves, and there were baskets of food left over. And in Matthew 6, when Jesus was teaching the people, he said, don't worry about what you will eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And that's what it is. Seeking first his kingdom is the fear of the Lord being more concerned with the kingdom of God than the world and what the world has for you. But this is really hard. We all have needs in our life. You know, I, don't, I can't remember the last time that God gave me water from a rock, but I know that it is possible, and I read in the Bible that God provides. And this psalm says that if you have a right relationship with God, then you will lack nothing. And it encourages you to seek first his kingdom. And ultimately, it will come to fruition when we meet with Jesus. We'll have everything we need. And verse 22 at the end of the psalm also says that fear of the Lord leads to no condemnation. In Romans 8, verse 1, we read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is prophetic, but also under the old covenant, David had a relationship with God and he knew something of freedom from condemnation because he had a right relationship with his father. David looked forward to the day when the death of Jesus would cover all his sins by Jesus' blood and he had the promise of the Messiah's coming. But we have the good news of his arrival. It's already happened. We know that there is now no condemnation. Jesus is and always was the only way to salvation. It was God's plan right from the beginning. And David knew it. He knew it. And so the Psalms look forward to the coming of the Messiah 
and they teach us to praise God. David also invites the listener, the reader, the hearer, you know, the men in the cave, to experience God's goodness for themselves. Verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. This phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe when people first come to faith. Like, for example, in 1 Peter 2, it says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. But his instruction um, about taste and see that the Lord is good, um, he says, verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. His instruction was under the old covenant by doing good and obeying the law. He's teaching these men to do good, obey the law, not by faith. But now we have Jesus. We can taste and see that the Lord is good by faith in Jesus Christ. Have a think about that if you're not already a follower of Jesus. Would you like to have a relationship with this God, this Father who delivers you from your troubles? And there will be no more condemnation. And those of us who are in a relationship with God, are we more concerned with what God thinks or with what the world thinks? I've got quite a shallow example here, but you know, in Psalm 45, it says, the king is enthralled by my beauty. It says that, the king is enthralled by my beauty. But do I, do I believe that? Do I trust in that? And do I listen to what God says in the Bible? Or do I go on Facebook and see how many likes my profile picture has <laughs> and worry about what the world thinks? Or do I think about what, what God says? And do I read the Bible so that I know what God says about me? You know, are we more concerned with what God thinks? It's so that we remain on the path that he has for us, so that we can be honest in prayer in our relationship with him and not fall into sin. Ultimately, it's for our joy and our freedom. Like David, he's expressing pure joy. I will extol the Lord at all times. And freedom, he's saying there is no condemnation. It's not supposed to be um, a burden on him to have fear of the Lord and, you know, to do what God says. It's for his freedom and joy. And do we want that? And if you are feeling afflicted and brokenhearted, this psalm is for you. These men were in a cave David was hiding, he was, you know, his life was at risk. But his right relationship with God led him to praise. If you are desperate and in times of trouble, a right relationship with Jesus can lead you to praise, even in the midst of troubles, even if you are still hiding in a cave. The use of the Psalms was modelled for us in the New Testament by the apostles and in Paul's letters. They use the Psalms, they, they quote them, we can see as we read through, and the Psalms lead them into passionate praise. They help us to understand the bigger picture of the Bible and help to cultivate honesty in prayer. So I'm really excited about getting into the book of Psalms, and I feel like God's saying it's going to strengthen our relationship with him and lead us into real honesty in prayer and real passion in our praise. So if you feel like God's spoken to you about any of those things, I hope we'll have a time when we'll be able to respond in prayer. Maybe if you'd like to have a relationship with Jesus, 
or if you want to be honest in prayer with Jesus and put your relationship right and be more concerned with what God thinks of you than what the world thinks of you. So maybe we can start our response in worship. Bill? Well done,